you would please take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of the letter to the Romans. We continue our study there this morning as we make making our way through Romans 12. Um, and since Richard brought up the connection cards, Richard, uh, just a couple weeks ago, Joel sent me a connection card and said, hey, remember, we're playing football later on this afternoon. <laughs> if that were true, I would be limping. Um, I have found out the older I get, I'm not as spry as I used to be. Uh, this morning, we continue our way through Romans 12 as we began last week, making our way through, picking back up where we had left off. We had made our way already through uh, Romans 1 through 11 now and 12 and, and forward, looking at what we could e- easily call the practical application to the book of Romans in terms of what do you do once you get such good thinking, clear biblical reasoning and making the point that, and you'll hear me make this several other times, but making the express point that that, that has to do something in and for us. In other words, it has to move us in a direction. We can't just let that information just sit in our minds and hearts. It's got to compel an action, right? We, 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 we get the richness of the gospel that God rescues us from sin and death, that God takes, not, it doesn't just rescue, doesn't just, right, right, God doesn't just pull us out of it, right? It's not as if we are there and He reaches down to pull us out of it. It is that, but it's bigger than that. When we think about the gospel, it's the idea that God could just simply reach down and pull us out would give us the idea that God was not fundamentally touched by our sin. But the problem with that theory is, is He was. Because Jesus didn't just throw a rope down and pull us out. He walked down into it. He walked down into the depths of death and mire and, and all our idolatry and all our defilement and didn't just take us out of it, but He actually took it on Himself and gave us His perfect righteousness. So that when we stand before God, we genuinely stand there cleansed and renewed. Beloved of God, that is the gospel. That's what Paul so passionately gave to the Romans and to the Corinthians and to the Galatians and to the Philippians and to the Colossians and to Philemon and and all the places in which he preached. This is the message that Paul brought, the message that that is brought home to us through Romans. And so, when we're looking at why does the gospel matter, well, yeah, for one reason, one major reason, that's save us from death. But for two, it gives us a new framework for how to live. If we are redeemed and we are in Christ, then that means something fundamental has to change in how we live our lives. And you will find no better place than Romans 12 to 16 to lay that out in terms of what that actually means. And so that's what we're continuing to do. Paul gave us the thesis statement of this section last Sunday when we looked at we are to be living sacrifices. So if we're fundamentally changed by the gospel and we have an understanding of what the gospel is that uh, I just explained, then Paul says, okay, in light of that, we're living sacrifices. And so the rest of Romans 12, and we could argue beyond, tell us what that means. What does it actually mean to be a living sacrifice. Well, it means that first and foremost, we're, conf- we're not conformed to the world, but transformed. Okay, so what does that transformation look like? Well, Paul begins to lay that out, or let's put it this way. Paul continues to lay that out in the verses that we're looking at this morning, which happens to be Romans 12, 3 to 8. 
So without further delay, let us turn our attention there. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 3. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible inerrant word. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in, teaching, in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So as the reading of God's Word, may He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Father, thank You. Thank You for this time. Thank You for this Word, and thank You for the rich truths that lie herein. Be with us, we pray. May Your mercy meet us this morning through truth being applied to our minds and hearts that we might be forever transformed. Meet us here, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last week it was He-Man and Transformers. Um, this week we get back to the, the more noble illustration of the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, because in that story, in that story, and, and trust me, I have a whole folder more that you've never even heard before. So they're, they're just... In that story, though, the Fellowship of the Ring, what you find is, if you're familiar with it at all, you know that the nine people, the nine beings who make up the Fellowship of the Ring are very different. They're very different people. They have different skill sets. They have different histories. And in some instances, they're totally different races. These nine beings, they, they are brought together for a specific task. They're brought together for a common purpose. And when you look at this group, one of the things that you cannot deny is the diversity of it. You cannot deny how diverse it actually is. Now, how intentional Tolkien may or may not have been in that, it's hard to say. I, don't th I, don't say, I wouldn't say he was it was completely unintentional, but I don't want to assign, assign too much intention to the diversity itself. But what we can say is that it was diverse. And when you start looking at this group of people, when they are assembled together, there are different skills that Elrond knew, and if you don't know who he is, don't worry about it, that Elrond knew, Gandalf knew, Galadriel knew would be essential for that fellowship to accomplish its task. Right? So it wasn't just, they didn't just meet, need nine strong swordsmen. They didn't need nine guys who were great with a bow. They didn't need nine dwarves who were good with axes. They needed seemingly innocent creatures who had no discernible skill to the untrained eye. They needed swords. They needed bows. They needed axes. But they needed people who were willing to come together who were very different to accomplish a common purpose which was fight against evil. Beloved, you, you can't make up a better illustration than that. I mean, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a, a better one anywhere. 
Because as the story unfolds, you begin to see how each one was necessary. Even the ones who go out early in the telling, their part becomes important. What they give to the quest becomes important. And when we're looking here at Romans chapter 12, looking in these verses, we're seeing something very similar by the Apostle Paul of taking note of if we are indeed transformed and we're all different, and we are, I mean, there are some similarities, of course, but there's difference. How, what happens then? It would be easy for us to fragment what humans love to do, right? Even Christians love to do. We love to fragment. And Paul is saying, take that diversity and bring it in to accomplish the common purpose for which we are all called, which is the glory of Christ. And so, when we look at this, when we, we see believers who are transformed, Paul is pointing out what would be a very practical reality for the church. God has not left His people without resources for maturity and growth. God has not left us to figure it out on our own. What He has done after the, the, the pinnacle of sending His Son to rescue us from sin and death, then sends other people who've been rescued by the same Son who are very different from us to come and form community for the purpose of our growth and maturity and His glory. And beloved, that, that becomes a beautiful picture. The tapestry that is, that is being sewn there becomes something that is so magnificent, so wonderful to behold, and so unrepeatable anywhere else. If you look at most cults, they don't want diversity, they want uniformity. If you look at other religions, it does, it's not looking for diversity, they're looking for uniformity. Whereas Christianity says, no, 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 we want your diversity, we want your differences, we want your differences harnessed for a common purpose. And it becomes a vital thing for us to recognize that. So we're not trying to make different people like us. We're trying to embrace differences. And sometimes those differences need to be discipled. Why, let's just be honest. Sometimes those differences need a little help to get a little polish, to get a little shape. Because everybody is odd in their own way, but some people are a little more odd than others. And those are the ones we want to love and help. And sometimes we need to recognize we're the oddball. I've had to recognize that in my own life, and it's humbling to think, man, everybody's so weird, and then it's like, oh, it's, I'm the weird one. They're the normal ones. But God has put us all together, and He's equipped His people, that is His church, with gifts to prepare the world and ourselves for the return of Christ. And here's what I want to say. This morning, if you're sitting in here and you call Christ Lord, you have a gift. God has gifted you with something. And here's what else I want to say. That gift is not just for you. That gift is meant to be shared. You shouldn't be sitting on a gift that is not being shared. The whole purpose of a gift is that we might in turn share it with other people so that they can grow and they can learn. Because the beautiful thing is, is God has placed you in the body of Christ for that purpose, to help equip brothers and sisters for the return of Christ and to prepare the world for that return as well. But here's the thing in our culture. This is true of Christians and non-Christians alike. Gifted people tend to get a lot of attention. Why? Because we're often enamored with their gift, right? We're offered, often drawn, drawn rather, to that gift. We're, we're drawn to that ability. We're, we're drawn to that, that, uh, that capacity to influence. 
and it's magnetic, and it draws us. But here's where I think Paul would disciple us and say, what if, and I'm being sarcastic, but what, what if that gift is actually meant to draw you to Christ and not to that person? And so what if, gifted people, we, under, we get to understand that our gifts are not for our own advancement, but genuinely are to glorify God, to edify the body of Christ, to serve with humility, love, and grace. You see, that's what gifting is for. I'll come back around to this in a little bit, but we need to appreciate that the purpose of giftedness is not just recognition, it's not to put somebody else on a pedestal, and it's not merely for their compensation. Compensation for gifts are fine in places where we can, but the primary purpose of gifts in the community of Christ is to bring these different gifts together to serve the Lord, and that's what we should be doing. And so as, as Paul lays this out this morning, there's one idea I want for us to see, and it's this, that humble service shows the power and grace of God. That humble service shows the power and grace of God. Now, within this little paragraph that we've already read here in Romans, you've got two ideas working together. You've got the, the idea of, 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 of grace or, or gifts and grace. But the words that Paul uses here is this beautiful Greek word, and I'm going to spend just a second talking about it. It is the beautiful word that is called charismata. Charismata. Now you hear it, and you might hear, oh, charismatic. And I want you to understand what a rich, beautiful, God-centered, God-honoring, wonderful word that is. Because when you're talking about a charismata, we are not talking about uh, some, some what people might call an odd branch of evangelicalism. We are not describing people who are a little more lively in their worship than us. We are not describing people who have different belief, beliefs about the gifts than us. That word has been made to mean that, but really what that word means is gift of grace. And so that our lives, our charismata, our capacity to do what we do in the body of Christ is charismata, the capacity to bless and, and be used of God is charismata. This wonderful word that says those things we possess that are a blessing to other people are not ours. They didn't come from us. You don't just whip that up. God gives that. And that, that gift is used to glorify God. So, let's reclaim some of these words and ideas with biblical meanings. This is what they're designed to do. When you think about God's gifts and God's grace, they really are meant to produce the same thing in us. They're meant to produce holiness in God's people, and they're meant to help us love well. So we want to we be holy and we want to love well. We want to love God, we want to be holy, but we also want to love God's people well. And so Paul begins here, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Now, when you look at this, for through the grace given to me, or by the grace given to me, however way your translation might read, 
automatically, Paul is doing exactly here what he did in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So when Paul is talking about mercies, those are mercies that flow from God. When Paul is talking about, for by the grace given to me, he's looking at himself not as the guy who musters grace up or who works it up in himself, but this grace is given by God. In other words, Paul is the recipient of it. So when we're looking at Paul's authority, that's what he's doing. He's appealing to his own authority, for by the grace given to me, What kind of grace? Well, the grace to be apostle, the grace to have a voice among you, the grace to speak the Word of God to you. Paul is rooting his authority in the grace of God, but look at what else he's doing. For by the grace given to me, I said to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought. What is motivating action in the church, whether it's thought or deed, it's God's grace. And so when we think about the grace of God, it becomes the impetus for growth, and it becomes the standard of authority in God's kingdom. Now, let that sink in. Authority is not dictatorial. Authority is not with an iron fist. And you see that. If you, if you watch bad preacher videos, they're out there. And there are really some doozies out there. But that's not the way the Bible lays it out, right? I saw a, a bad preacher video the other day where the pastor was wanting to prove his authority in a congregation. So you know what he did? Had a guy stand up and get down on all fours and bark like a dog. Now, when I think about authority in Scripture, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone, that doesn't sound like humiliating one of your members in front of a congregation. That sounds satanic. What Paul is doing here is reminding us whatever authority we have comes from God. Whatever ways in which we might lead, it comes from God. How we interact and grow with one another is grace from God. And beloved of God, when we lose sight of that, we become Pharisees. We become dictatorial. We become little tyrants who rule their kingdom. Paul says, no, we grow, we have authority all by grace. Grace is from God alone, it is not earned. And so, so he's rooting, he's, he's creating the standard, he's creating the foundation for by grace given me that I say to everyone among you. So what, what are we doing by grace? We're not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure, measure of faith that God has assigned. And so when we think about this, so the, the command to the Christian is to consider the self, and we've got to be spurred on by grace for a proper self-evaluation, that our self-evaluation is seen through grace. So in other words, when I see myself as having been down in the pit of sin and death, and that Jesus had to come down and grab me and carry me out of it and set my feet on a rock. Now my self-evaluation not becomes, look how good I am. It becomes, look how redeemed I am. Look how needy I've been. Look where the Lord is, is bringing me. And we begin to put the focus. The humble person, it's not as if they disparage themselves. They just keep the focus on the Lord. They keep the focus in their lives on the Lord, even as they evaluate themselves. But when we look at this, this is a call for Christians across the board to choose humility. 
whether you're a leader, whether you're a servant, whether you're on a platform, whether you're behind the scenes, it doesn't matter. There is no difference in terms of choosing humility. We are called to be humble, to think of ourselves in humble terms, and to remind ourselves that we too are needy for the gospel. When you think of it, what does, what does pride do? Well, pride comes in our life, and it compels us to seek service rather than to serve. So, in other words, now when I, my arrogance compels me to look for you to serve me in some way instead of my capacity to serve you. Now, here's another, here's another form of pride, though. People have different gifts, and sometimes people in arrogance or pride, they don't think of it this way, won't allow other people to serve them. No, 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 I couldn't possibly let No, 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 no. Understand that they're trying to operate in their gift. We need to receive that. It can be a form of pride not to let other people serve us in keeping with their own calling in Christ. And so when we have this self-evaluation, here's what we're evaluating as. We've done nothing to earn God's love and favor. It's been freely given. And we have an opportunity and responsibility in response to that love to be conduits of that love to other people serving in humility. And so we take those opportunities. When we look at this humility, Paul says it's a, it's a, a fruit of sober judgment concerning ourselves. And so Paul will actually root, root this act of humility in the amount of faith that we have. And so now our, our humility, track with me, comes from God's grace. It's an honest self-evaluation, but it is an exercise of faith. In other words, will we trust God and His community enough to be humble before them and not be braggadocious and beat our chests or act like we're more deserving than we are or act like we, we, we have earned a spot that we haven't earned? So Paul roots this act of humility in faith. It is an exercise of faith, beloved, to be humble. It becomes a fruit of faith to be humble and to have an honest self-evaluation. But here's what I'll say about this. When we're dealing with pride, we've got a couple choices here. Either we're not living by faith in Christ, the, the faith that God has given us to trust that God will look after us and take care of us and keep watch over us, or we don't have enough faith to be humble. And in those cases, prayer is needed, but we also have to come to this place of understanding that humility really is a fruit of my faith in Christ. Insofar as I'm trusting in the Lord, I can be humble. And so far as I am not trusting in the Lord, I'm probably going to be arrogant and prideful in some way, shape, or form. I'm probably going to live above my means. I'm probably going to expect and demand things from other people because by doing so, I get what I want instead of trusting God to give me what I need. And sometimes those are different. Now, sometimes we want what God wants to give us, and it's what we need. But often, and a lot of the times, we want something above and beyond what God is ready to give to us. So the question becomes, will we trust Him enough in those moments to humbly wait in faith and to serve His people while we're waiting? Those are questions that we, I have to ask, you have to ask. Here's the thing. I want you to also see this. I promise we're going to get out of verse 3 here in just a minute. 
each according to the measure of faith, the measure of faith that God has assigned. I want that to wash over you real quick. It's easy to make our faith our own. And what I mean is, it's easy to assume if we have faith, we've done it. But even Paul would here tell us that, hey, that faith that you're exercising for humility is also the gift of God. You know why? So you can never be like that Pharisee when you come to prayer and say, God, thank God I'm not, you know, I tithe, I have faith, I do everything right, and I'm not like this amoral jerk over here. So that every time we come before the Lord, we recognize even the belief that we possess has been a precious, gracious, merciful gift from God. And beloved, what does that work to do? Keep us humble, (laughs) to keep us dependent, to keep us walking in the Spirit. So Paul then takes this, so for by grace, given me to say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he all. And he tells us why this is important. The rest of this paragraph is as to why is that important. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So Paul gets into this idea that we are many members with one body. So what Paul was doing is he's talking about the notion of diversity, a word we hear a lot in our day, a word that's come to mean many different things to many different people. Sometimes because of where we are or how we're conditioned, we hear the word diversity and we immediately start having negative thoughts and connotations. Or we hear the word diversity and it immediately sends us most often down a political line of thinking. Well, I want to rescue this word. This is another word we really do need to rescue. Diversity is a beautiful word. Despite how people might or might not try to politicize it, there is a a biblical authenticity to the word diversity that gets at the heart of the Christian message and Christian history. So when Paul is going on about in in one body we have many members and the many members do not have all the same function, this is diversity. This is what it is. This is diversity more than most of the things we hear in modern culture. What do we do with the word diversity? We reduce it down to the color of one's skin. That is what modern culture does. And so now that diversity, all it really means is, is are you white or are you black? Are you Hispanic or are you, are you uh, Indian from India or are you Native American? And then it becomes this idea, well, we need diversity without regard to history, experience, or anything else. It just becomes skin color. Well, that is so off base. That is not really what diversity is. Because when you look at human beings made in the image of God, we share so many likenesses that skin color is such a minor thing. It's pigmentation. What we have to capture is, is what is God saying about diversity? What does God mean when he calls us to this diversity under one head and one body for a central function. Well, he doesn't mean skin color. He's talking about our experience. Where do we come from? Our gifting. What gifts are we possessing that we're bringing to the table? What shared histories or what different histories do we bring? Uh, we, We cannot deny that diversity with regard to cultures brings differences to the table. 
But what Paul does here is says, let's embrace diversity as it's meant to be embraced. Not merely the color of one's skin, but how have you been gifted to serve the body of Christ? And without regard of your skin color, how will you use that gift to glorify God? So that, beloved of God, I heard uh, a, a pastor say this one time, and I couldn't say amen loud enough. Someone asked him about his church, and they asked him if, how he got the diversity in his church. He said, given the city we live in, our church is not particularly diverse, but you know what? We're not worried about the skin color of people who walk through our door. We're thankful for every soul that the Lord brings here, and we're just aiming to serve them well and have them serve the body. Beloved, when we get to that point as believers, and we say diversity is these people who are made in the image of God who bring all sorts of differences to the table for one purpose, soli deo gloria, we get at the heart of biblical teaching for diversity. And then we don't have to worry about what we look like on the outside. Where are our hearts? Where is the Lord using us in one another's lives to promote the kingdom of Christ? So that the church becomes much like a university in this way, a diversity of people for one express purpose. In our case, it's the glory of Christ. It's the glory of Christ to come and to use our gifts. And so that now, one gifted person is not more important than another one is. So often people think that, that preachers are, are some of the most important gifted people in the church. I do not deny that the proclamation of the Word is important. But beloved, a church cannot function if it had only preachers. We need deacons. We need servants. We need elders. We need other people who can teach the Word. We need other people who can uh, disciple and shepherd and walk with other people. We need counselors. And beloved, just as much as we need all that, we need the people who come up that you never know, but you show up and things are done. Sound is on. Lights are set. Music is played. All the things that happen in a church, we need it. And we need each other. And they all function for the glory of Christ because we're doing this under one head. Paul takes those two verses now. So, so again, four and five kind of work as he's, he's making a thesis statement and he's kind of filling it in. So six, seven, and eight. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. When you look at that list, there's seven of them there, and the, the idea there is communal growth and blessing are the fruits of God's gifts, right, to acknowledge that. I've often said before from up here that one of the things I loved about Christian Weiss before he went to be with the Lord is he often would come to me after, after a service and tell me aspects about a message he appreciated. But without fail, without fail, he acknowledged to me and with me, and we both said amen, that what you do is a gift from God. It's not yours. And so I'm praying that you'll do it faithfully. I love it. That reminder that what we do with God's gifts, those things are not ours. We've been, we've, we've been made stewards for a time. Stewards to shepherd this gift for the glory of Christ. 
And so these gifts then become God's means of loving and helping and serving a community. And so that when we look at the different gifts, they are meant to bless and support each other. And I love that Paul lists seven here. Um, There are more than this, and we find different lists in other places, but here he lists seven, and he begins with the notion of prophecy. Now, it's common in modern hermeneutics to equate what he does here with preaching. I won't deny that there's a practical application of this kind of prophecy to preaching. It's actually not expressly what Paul has in mind here. The idea here would be in the first century church when they had people who were giving prophecies from the Lord, which is exactly why Paul would talk about giving a prophecy based on or in proportion to or anchored in the faith, faith, faith in God. In other words, this this message from God is God's message, and the one who would give it must give it believing and trusting and following the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's where I want to make a distinction here, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time here because it's not the purpose. We would want to make a neat distinction here between tongues and prophecy because tongues was an ecstatic gift that had a very specific purpose in its time, but prophecy here was a message from God to God's people that was intelligible by all. But because Paul roots it in faith, there is a temptation to abuse it and to use it for undue greed, gain, and wealth. So if one in Paul's day was to prophesy, he was to do it in faith that this was the Lord's message. Now, we will make an application to preaching here because I think it's important. So for the one preaching, the one must be preaching in faith and the Holy Spirit walking through the Word of God, following the Word's leading, so that that preaching, that teaching remains biblically grounded in truth. Because here's what happens when it doesn't. Jacob and I were privy to a bad preacher clip the other day. This guy's going on, I have the largest house in the state of Louisiana. I have the biggest house of any preacher in America. My wallet here, this little thing is, well, this is my phone, but is Louis Vuitton. I have three, paid in cash. It makes me sick. I cannot tell you, I could chew nails watching that because this is what preaching has become to some is an opportunity to line their pockets, an opportunity to step out and not preach by faith, preach by greed, preach by flesh, and to take people and go themselves to the very outer layers, outer realms of hell itself. Beloved of God, these gifts, this gift of prophecy, the gifts of teaching we'll look at here in just a second and exhortation are not just meant for us to build a following, to establish a brand, but to honor the Lord, to proclaim the Word of God, and to encourage the people. He doesn't just stop at prophecy, though. He says the one uh, or if service rather in our serving. There's that beautiful word, Diakonos, where we get our word deacon. That word diakonos, that idea of not just serving, waiting on tables for sure, that's, that's one of the major uh, implications of that word, but laying your life down, serving in ways that bless, 
that seek to lead others. This too has to be done in proportion to, of our faith. Every gift has to be done in faith or else it just becomes a means of, of personal aggrandizement or gain. But this notion of serving, serving the Lord, serving the church, laying down these other things, these places where we think we deserve something better, and serving in ways that show love, that show sacrifice. And then he builds to teaching. Let's just put teaching and exhortation together. Faithfully giving truth for growth and maturity, letting the precepts of truth and the statutes of Scripture be the foundation of all that we learn. Because what happens? What happens when those things are absent? The church suffers. You can see it. You can see it in church history when uh, one of the things that the Reformation was trying to do was recapture faithful biblical teaching. And it did for the most part. Not perfectly, but it did because the church was drifting. There was mission drift there. And these teaching and these exhortation gifts, again, are used solely deo gloria. The humans are not very inventive because in Paul's day, you had men teaching sexual immorality for personal gain. You had men preaching Christ for personal gain. And, and we still see it. In 2023, we still see the same patterns again and again and again. And Paul is reminding us that these gifts, while members or while some uh, people in the church should be compensated for using their gifts, he talks about that in other places, that the goal of them is not compensation, rather, it's growth in Christ. Really, let's, let's take a step back from that. The goal of them is growth in Christ, but even more than that, the goal is for the glory of God. And the rest falls out from there. We should be thankful. Has somebody in our church been a real blessing to you? Have you thanked them lately? You should. You should if someone's used their gifts to be a blessing to you or you've observed them use their gifts to be a blessing to somebody else. It is absolutely right to say, oh, man, brother, sister, thank you. God bless you. The Lord is honored because you're using your gifts. Those are good responses. But the gifted, those, as we use our gifts, we need to remember we're using them for God's glory. He rounds this list off the three things, giving, leading, and mercy. When you look at this, he talks about the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity. In other words, Paul, even in his day, saw that there were some among the number who had been blessed with resources. And you know what Paul's admonition to them? That is a gift from God. We should be generous with that gift. This is not, he's not, this is not gain or greed for undue gain. This is not prosperity gospel here. This is Paul saying, when the Lord has been generous with you, it is fit and right, meet and right, that we be generous with his church and with his people so that then that generosity can go to bless other people and maybe empower other people to be generous. And so in whatever ways the Lord has blessed us with resources, part of it is we take those resources and we bless the Lord and other people. That's the idea. That's the way the Scriptures preach and teach, that that becomes a gift of God as much as preaching or teaching or exhortation, but not just giving. So he doesn't just focus on money here. Leads, leading with zeal. This idea, zeal for what? For whom? Zeal for God and zeal for the people that God puts 
in the path of the leader. Not leading to have authority, not leading to oppress, not leading to demand respect, leading to honor God, leading to love God's people, leading so that other people might in turn be raised up to lead. And here's what I'll say about leaders. How do we vet leaders? Well, we look at the people who honor Christ, who love Christ, who extol Christ, and we look at people who are willing to be led in their season. So a leader is not just someone who's always taking control of the situation. He or she is also someone who recognizes there are other seasons where someone else can actually do a better job of leadership here, and so I should follow that. Jesus led, and he followed the Father. Paul led, and he followed in some places, and he followed Christ. The disciples lead, and they follow Jesus, and so forth and so on. So lead with zeal for God's glory and the good of his people. Not aloof, not dictatorial, humble. And finally, mercy. He rounds this list out, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Why with cheerfulness? You know why? Because in the name of mercy ministry, so often we can be begrudging. We can be, this is very inconvenient. This person is always so needy. These people always are, are needy. And when we engage in acts of mercy, one of the things we should be engaging with is cheerfulness. A, we have opportunity to be a blessing. B, we have resources to be a blessing. And C, this is an opportunity to shepherd and disciple another person. Beloved, it's not always fun. It's not. And I'm not trying to say so. Put a smile on your face and be happy about it. It's not always fun, but it is essential. Just like, guess what? It's not always fun for people to lead us either. There are seasons in our lives where we can look back where we probably made it hard on people to lead us and to show mercy and compassion. So this is an opportunity for reflection that those who would lead with mercy would do so with cheerfulness, not merely out of obligation and not with complaint, but with thanksgiving to God. Community has to flourish through the gifts of God as I said a moment ago, it becomes very easy to focus on the gift, on the gift rather than the giver. Or the, the it becomes, sorry, I'm, I'm murdering this. It becomes easier to focus on the person rather than the gift itself and what the gift is, is designed to do. God gifts can have a ripple effect of blessing, but their design is to love God and His people. As I mentioned earlier, when people build a cult of personality, you know, remember that song from the 90s, anybody? Um, when people build a cult of personality or a personal tribe with God's gifts, they misunderstand the purpose and function of gifts. Now, some of you are singing the cult of personality in your head now, aren't you? For those of you who don't know, it's fine. But gifts are meant to bless. That's what they're meant to do. They're meant to bless. They're, they're meant to love. They're meant to compel us to worship and encourage other people to do the same thing. And so the different gifts given to different people are meant to be a blessing to the church. In other words, it's this beautiful diversity that comes together for a singular purpose. Just like every thread is different that makes a tapestry, every gift comes together for this grand design of God's beautiful work of art, His bride, 
who is a light and salt to the world. What a beautiful gift that is. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for today and for this opportunity to think through your gifts and your word and its power and its beauty and its diversity and all the things that make it what it is. Oh, Father, help us to embrace this notion that you bring different people with different histories, with different lives, with different gifts, with different understandings and different perspectives together for a common purpose. Not that we lose those differences at the door, but that we harness those differences to the glory of God. Help us to do that, we pray. Give us grace to be faithful. Through Christ we pray. Amen.